The time is now. Volume 3, Episode 50. Someone is turning 50 today. Employment Law Now. This is the big 50th birthday celebration, episode 50 of Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, your host, also the Vice Chair of Labor and Employment here at Cozen O'Connor. Thank you, thank you so much. We've got a big, big party today. Hard to believe that the podcast is turning 50. 50 episodes since we started this back in February 2017. Thank you to everybody who has been listening. Thank you to everybody who has been giving feedback back to me, uh, constructive and otherwise. Uh, But basically, thank you all for listening. Today, we celebrate 50 episodes of this Human Resources and Employment Law podcast with a very special Human Resources and Employment Law guest. David Weisenfeld is the legal editor at Expert HR. He covers topics related to recruiting and hiring, including pre-employment screening, drug testing, ban the box, and interviewing and selecting of new hires. He also hosts Expert HR's award-winning podcast and webinar series and has been quoted by Sherm, HR Magazine, and other publications. Prior to joining Expert HR, as you'll hear in a few minutes, David served as the United States Supreme Court correspondent and editor-in-chief of a nationwide legal news service while also co-anchoring the legal services newscasts and editing the associated employment law product. I am thrilled to have David join for this very big party celebration. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Mike, it's great to be with you. And I don't know if you know this, although I'm assuming you do since you've probably listened to every one of my prior episodes, but this is a very, (laughs) very big, very special episode. It's our 50th birthday of the podcast, our 50th episode, uh, and I'm so happy that a podcast really devoted to all things employment law and HR-related issues, we've got an HR expert like you coming on. 
Well, happy birthday uh, to the podcast. That's uh, great to be on uh, such a historic episode. Thank you. And, and I can tell you that, you know, the podcast uh, didn't have much of an issue turning 40 as it did 50. For some reason, podcast seems a little funky at 50, but um, <laughs> in, in any event. Uh, but, but again, thanks for, uh, for joining us. Why don't you uh, tell the listeners very quickly, you know, what Expert HR is and what your role is with the company? Sure, I'd be glad to, Mike. Expert HR is an employment law compliance website for HR professionals and really runs the gamut. So we have people who are key decision makers at the very top of an organization. We have HR generalists who are just starting out and many people in between. And uh, it's really covering not only employment law at the federal level, but also with all 50 states and in localities as well. And in terms of what I do, I head up our news and blog team coverage. I also host our podcast series, as well as our monthly webinars. And in addition to that, I've covered a lot of developments uh, at the pre-employment screening and job interview stage. That's great. Um, did you have any particular legal or HR background prior to joining uh, Expert HR? So I am a proud graduate of the Syracuse University College of Law and wow, passed, uh, did pass the bar exam, but uh, my summers were a bit different than perhaps what uh, you and, and many other attorneys uh, are in that uh, when I was in law school, I actually worked as a sports writer at USA Today and the Washington Times. And while uh, the law background enabled me to cover some things like previewing at the NFL free agency trial, which was a big issue at the time, uh, really I was mainly covering baseball, tennis, uh, and sports, so having fun with that. So that was kind of my first love. Um, but my background, as you can tell from that, was in journalism, and I also had some in broadcasting as well. And so then after law school, I worked briefly at Court TV, and then I was at a company called LawCast, where I had the good fortune uh, to cover, among other things, the Supreme Court for many years. Uh, and in addition to that, I was the company's employment law editor, and LawCast was very much like national public radio, except it was actually geared exclusively for lawyers. So it was people like you, Mike, who might have a long <laughs> commute to work, and maybe they didn't want to waste the time, so they'd pop in a a podcast or a CD back in the day of uh, us talking about all things uh, legal. And it was not just employment law, but other areas as well. And then the last eight years, I have been right here at Expert HR. That's very cool. And you, you just mentioned the Supreme Court, and that was a great segue. Um, before I get into a few substantive topics that I wanted to ask you about, as you said, I know you've covered the Supreme Court and its HR-related decisions. Uh, there's a pretty big one coming up, and uh, I think the oral argument is uh, coming up next week or so uh, on the LGBTQ issue. What can you tell us about that issue that's currently before the Supreme Court and, and, and what employers might want to know about that? Well, it's a fascinating issue, Mike, and in fact, it's really three cases that the court is hearing uh, next Tuesday, and I'll, I'll be down there for that, uh, covering it for us, for Expert HR, for one of our upcoming podcasts. And I need uh, a roving reporter for this podcast. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a good thing. For 2020, I think I'm, that's on my list of things I need to get. <laughs> on the to-do list. But yeah. one of the cases, your, your listeners 
perhaps could be familiar with because it's out of the Second Circuit, uh, a case called Zarda versus Altitude Express. Uh, but interestingly, two of the three cases, the employees won at the lower level. Um, in one of the cases, they did not. Uh, but so the speculation is that the Supreme Court perhaps took up these cases in order to rule against uh, LGBT rights being protected under Title VII. Um, but what's interesting here, I should point out, is that it's not necessarily an all or nothing scenario that's before the court. And by that, I mean, it is possible that the court could rule that these employees are not protected by Title VII and yet still give them some protection and the way they conceivably could do that, and I'm thinking of somebody like Chief Justice Roberts in particular, uh, who's kind of the center of the court now, uh, the way they could do that is to find that although these employees are not protected, they are the victims of sex stereotyping. And under a case called Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins, uh, that is a protection that employees have. So for instance, if I had fired someone, and this was the precise issue in one of the cases, uh, if I fired a woman because she had an excessively masculine haircut and dressed more like a man than a woman, uh, if I stereotyped her, then perhaps she would be protected, even though uh, she's not necessarily covered by Title VII. So a lot of different ways the court could go here, and I think that's why this case is getting so much attention these three cases i should say yeah it's interesting um because i mean it's certainly an interesting and a very important legal issue uh from a title seven coverage standpoint from a practical standpoint when you're talking about employers and their policies and practices and i'm going to get into this in a moment uh, a little bit deeper um but so much of what's happening in the hr world is happening on the state and local levels and so many states like new york so many cities like new york York City, for example, already have sexual orientation in their anti-discrimination, anti-harassment laws. So, you know, from a practical standpoint, I'm not completely sure that the Supreme Court's decision on this from a Title VII perspective is going to change a lot of what companies are doing. Many of them are writing sexual orientation, obviously, into their policies. That's very true. And, and certainly it's not just limited to New York. A lot of other states and cities have those protections as well. But as you know, many parts of the country do not. So that's why this is going to get a whole lot of attention. Uh, and, and one of the cases uh, deals with a transgender employee who one day came to work and said she was going to start dressing as a woman. It had been a male employee. And so that one presents kind of a separate issue as well. So it's going to be fascinating to see which way the court goes. Uh, th there had been speculation that they would take up a case like this for the last two or three years. But as you know, with the vacancy, long-running vacancy on the court with Merrick Garland not being seated, uh, and there only being eight justices for a year, things kind of really got pushed back on these hot-button issues. But now with the court, with a full nine members, uh, they seem poised to dive in. We won't hold you to it, certainly, but uh, <laughs> are you into making any kind of prediction? Always very hard to make a prediction, Mike, especially before 
I see the oral arguments and kind of yeah. see which way it was going. Um, if I had to guess, I would say it's more likely that the justices would say there is no Title Seven protection than that there is. But uh, as I alluded to earlier, it is possible there could be some sort of middle ground. I would say that Chief Justice Roberts definitely a bit of a wild card in this case. And I suspect the one thing I will predict for sure is that I, I, I would guess that this is a case that will not be decided until well into 2020. Usually the cases where the court is most divided are the ones where they take quite a bit of time and their term does not end until the end of June 2020. And that'll be right at the height of the presidential election. So it'll really be fascinating to see what happens there. But I, I would suspect that they will take most of the term in this deciding this one and so other than this one uh, you see any other big employment decisions uh, coming from the Supreme Court uh, before the term ends in June hello uh, this is definitely the yes I'm still here Mike Can oh I'm sorry me? yes Okay, yes. I was just about to say, uh, the court typically only fills about half of its schedule at the beginning of its term. So while this is the most notable employment case so far that's on its docket, I, I, I certainly would anticipate more cases being added before the end of the term. And one issue that they could hit might involve arbitration and specifically mandatory arbitration. Uh, they heard three cases last year involving arbitration uh, and a number of states have been passing laws uh, limiting mandatory arbitration clauses which kind of goes against what the Supreme Court has generally been holding so it wouldn't be shocking to see the Supreme Court take up a case involving that issue. Yeah, that's that's interesting. We have certainly, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago as well, uh, we've certainly been noticing that HR issues are being taken over by the state and local jurisdictions. What are your thoughts on, on and what have you been seeing when it comes to um, uh, issues pertaining to arbitration of employment disputes, particularly in sexual harassment cases? Well, it's been very interesting because kind of as a follow-up to the Me Too movement, We've seen a number of states passing laws in a number of areas, and one of them is with these mandatory arbitration clauses. Uh, five states, including New York, have passed laws limiting uh, the use of these clauses in sexual harassment or sex discrimination situations. Uh, but it was very interesting, as I'm sure you all know, Mike, uh, this past summer, a federal judge in New York struck down uh, New York's ban. So right. it will be very interesting to see if, if there are similar cases elsewhere. And California is one of the states that is considering a similar law to what New York had. And Vermont, Washington, and Maryland are the other states that have them. Illinois has one going into effect uh, as of January 1, 2020. Uh, so I, I'm interested to see if more states follow suit. Yeah, so am I. And, and to your point, it'll be interesting to see uh, if the Supreme Court throws its hat in the ring on this issue as well. Absolutely. 
Another issue uh, that I know we've been reading and tweeting and hearing a lot about uh, is in the area of background checks and particularly ban the box and salary history issues. Um, what have you been seeing and what have you been talking about on, on that front? So ban the box laws have really been a hot issue for a few years. Uh, it's not necessarily not necessarily a new issue, but the laws that we are seeing are getting even broader and what's fascinating about them is that it's really at the city and county level where we're seeing uh, these laws kind of take the lead and to use new york state as a perfect example new york state does not currently have a ban the box law limiting criminal history questions uh, of job applicants uh, during the hiring process. However, the four biggest cities all have fairly broad laws that place fairly significant restrictions on private employers, including, of course, New York City. So if you're an employer in New York, even though there isn't a state prohibition, you've really got to be careful. Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, and New York City all have restrictions. And that's really the case in a number of other states, too. Uh, and then some of the newer laws, uh, like California, for example, uh, are banning these criminal history questions all the way until a conditional job offer has been made. Uh, when this ban the box trend first started up in a few states, uh, it was pretty much limited to uh, restricting criminal history questions on job applications at the initial step, just so that a person could get a chance to step up to the batter's box, so to speak, and have a chance. Um, but now it's going further and further into the employment process, and we're seeing a number of laws at the local level, and even a couple like California's at the state level, uh, where you can't conduct a background check or ask about criminal history until that conditional offer stage. Why do you think we're seeing so much more action uh, on the state and city and, and local levels? Is it just a matter of politics or, or that things just move quicker in the, uh, in the branches on the state and local levels than it does on the national level? That's a good question. And I think some of it certainly can be attributed to the uh, current political climate. Uh, where clearly we are at a standstill at the federal level with the, the gridlock uh, with Congress and the executive branch. And so any protections at all uh, in employment or otherwise are going to come at the state or local level as a practical matter. And I, I think that's going to be the case uh, certainly through the next presidential election and depending on the outcome of that uh, perhaps further so uh, but it's nothing new that states have taken the lead I, I think you see that in some other areas uh, e even in areas where the federal government has acted uh, like with the Family and Medical Leave Act for example states and cities have gone further um, so I, I suspect that's going to continue yeah I, I, I share that uh um, prognostication as well. I think we're going to see more and more uh, regulation and initiatives on the state and local levels as well for political reasons uh, and, and others. Um, also on my list of hot topics these days is uh, in the area of data analytics. We've been 
hearing a lot about the use of data analytics in HR processes, whether it's recruitment, training. you have any thoughts on that, and, and what have you been uh, talking about there? Well, you're absolutely right. There's no question that uh, it's a trend, uh, and data analytics can be useful uh, in uncovering a number of things, uh, including things like unconscious bias in the hiring process. Uh, and so certainly it has its benefits, uh, but the one caveat that I would note is that uh, data analytics, and certainly it's not a trend that's going away, but it's only as useful uh, generally as the people who are doing the programming being free from sure. unconscious bias. And I bring this up because we're starting to th see developments, Mike, where uh, in AI, for example, and I know that wasn't your question, but uh, in that area, uh, you, you're starting to have situations where you can have automated job interviews. doesn't have to actually be a human being, but uh, invariably, the, the computer or how, however the setup is working, you have to have a program to set the questions. And if there's bias uh, in terms of how that program is being worked, then no matter how much in the way of analytics you have, uh, it's still going to be a biased result. So that's not to say that there aren't positives to it because there are. Uh, analytics can help an employer forecast, for example, uh, which of its employees are most likely to leave. Uh, and certainly there are other uh, benefits too, but it, it's just something that uh, you have to be always be conscious of potential uh, bias. And certainly it can remove bias as well, uh, but certainly a lot of moving parts when it comes to data analytics. So certainly it may uh, shift the claims or shift the problem from one type of bias that you are eliminating through the use of data analytics to a different kind of bias, whether it's in the programming or otherwise by using the data analytics. Yes, that's right. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's certainly something worth watching. Um, so David, this has been you know, really helpful and real informative. Um, what do you see as we're coming to the end of 2019 and unbelievably getting close to another new year? What do you see as uh, some hot topics that we'll all be discussing in 2020 that the HR world and employers should be thinking about now? Well, we hit on that one at the top, Mike, with LGBT and with that ruling, I strongly suspect, being still out there and, and people anxiously awaiting it until well into the spring of 2020, I think LGBT is going to continue to be a hot issue, uh, at least for the present time. And certainly this isn't the case in New York, but in big parts of the country, uh, you've got the situation where someone could potentially get married on a Sunday and do that legally because the Supreme Court has recognized same-sex marriage and yet get fired for it on a Monday and not necessarily be protected uh, if there's no local protection for them. So I suspect that'll continue to be an issue. Uh, another area that we haven't really talked about, but certainly merits consideration, is paid leave. We're seeing more activity with that at the state level and, and the local level as well. And I suspect that's something that's going to continue for sure uh, in 2020. Um, also, uh, an issue that's been percolating just in recent months, and I'm interested to see what happens with it, is whether more states will ban employers from pre-employment marijuana testing. 
So you know, you noticed I didn't say drug testing. They can still do that. But uh, Nevada made news, and certainly New York City did as well, uh, with bans on employers for testing for marijuana of applicants. And in these other states, uh, and we're now into double digits with states that have recognized recreational marijuana and with medical marijuana it's well into the 30s uh that's going to be a fascinating issue because the courts have been split in terms of how much protection uh job applicants and employees are entitled to Uh, sometimes even though they can legally use medically marijuana they're still not protected uh, under the law in their respective states. Now, that's not the case in the New England states. We've seen rulings in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island all kind of going the other way and giving protections uh, when it comes to drug tests. But uh, this is by no means universal. And that's why we're starting to see some legislative action now. And that's something that could continue in 2020. Yeah, and still one of the fascinating aspects of the whole marijuana discussion is the fact that it's still, uh, you know, an illegal drug under federal law. So all of these state and local initiatives making it uh, lawful for certain kinds of use in certain situations, you know, you sort of have this this federal uh, issue hanging over the head of all of this. Yes, absolutely. And, and just one more that I would add to that would be, we're two years into the Me Too movement. I suspect that we're going to continue to see more laws, not just with arbitration, but uh, in other areas as well in response to that. Um, and, and one thing I would say with arbitration, uh, Mike, is that some companies, even in states that permit employers to use mandatory arbitration clauses, and, and that's certainly the overwhelming majority of states, but some employers are nonetheless uh, making exceptions for sex harassment and sex discrimination cases and not requiring employees to arbitrate those claims. But I've definitely heard some pushback on that from some employer attorneys who've said that that could really be a slippery slope because, you know, what about, say, an African-American employee or an employee who's over 40 who says, well, what about me? You're making an exception for sexual harassment, but if I have an age discrimination claim or a race bias claim, I'm forced to arbitration. That doesn't seem very fair. So that's something. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because I've, I've had this discussion with a lot of people over the last year or two, and uh, I have found it interesting that, and again, it's by no means suggesting that sexual harassment, sexual abuse uh, continues, uh, doesn't continue to be a problem and shouldn't be addressed uh, in many different ways. Um, but, but one of the interesting um, aspects of all this is the question of these new laws um, requiring the sexual harassment training and specific contents of those trainings, the specific initiatives banning arbitration and sexual harassment cases, um, is that unnecessarily or unfairly putting too much of uh, a focus on sexual harassment and sex-based discrimination and sort of minimizing other forms of harassment and discrimination, as you said, whether it's race-based, age-based, or, you know, disability-based, n- name your protected class, simply because we're, we're addressing only sexual harassment. Yes, and I, I think that's exactly the concern, and it'd be interesting to see what happens.
Yeah, no, it's uh, it is fascinating. Well, David, uh, again, thank you so much. Um, this has been a terrific fiftieth birthday party, <laughs> and um, as uh, as we get all kinds of new developments coming from the Supreme Court and around the country, I'd hope to have you back on the podcast again to talk about them. That would be great, Mike. It was my pleasure. Well, I hope you found that as informative and as useful as I did. David will definitely be back as we get new developments, particularly with the Supreme Court going forward. I am really excited to be celebrating birthday number 50 here. Uh, I hope you are as well. hope that just comes through your speakers. Um, And I am looking forward to the next 50. Until then, I hope all of your labor is productive.